morning there and welcome to Rising. We have another stupendous show for you today. Lots of really interesting news to get it up to, I'm sure. Oh man, it's a humdinger. As many of you are probably aware by now, CNN has exclusively obtained recordings of the 2021 Mar-a-Lago meeting where former President Trump is heard admitting to retaining documents he knew were still classified after his term in office was over. Let's listen. Isn't it amazing? I have a big pile of papers. This thing just came out. Look. This was him. They presented me this. This is off the record, but they presented me this. This was him. This was the Defense Department and him. We looked at some. This was him. This wasn't done by me. This was him. All sorts of stuff. It's pages long. Look. Wait a minute. Let's see here. <laughs> Yeah. I just found, isn't that amazing? This totally wins my case, you know. Mm -hmm. Except it is like highly confidential, yeah. <laughs> secret. This is secret information. But look, look at this. You attack. And Hillary would print that out all the time, you know. <laughs> she'd, send it, no, she'd send it to yeah. Anthony Weiner. Yeah, yeah. The pervert. Um, by the way, isn't that incredible? Though? Yeah. I was just saying, because we were talking about it. <laughs> And you know, he said he wanted to attack Iran and what? He said the papers. Did. Pretty, wow. This was done by the military, given to me. Uh, I think we can probably. Right? We'll, we'll have to see. Yeah, we'll have to try to figure out. A, a, yeah. See, as president, I could have declassified. Yeah. It. Now I can't. You know, but this is. Yeah, classified. now we have a problem. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Historian and journalist Garrett Graff said of the recordings, quote, speaking as a Watergate historian, there's nowhere on thousands of hours of Nixon tapes where Nixon makes any comment as clear, as clearly illegal, as clearly self-aware as this Trump tape. If you'll remember, this is how Trump defended himself to Fox's Brett Baer earlier this month. Please, please, could we have it back? And they please, asked for that. Because they have no... We they were did talking. ask for it. No. And they said, I gave can you give some, the documents back? And we were talking. And then they said they went to DOJ to subpoena you to get them Which back. they've never done before. Right. And in but why fairness, not just hand them over then? Because I had boxes. I want to go through the boxes and get all my personal things out. I don't want to hand that over to Nara yet. And I was very busy, as you've sort of seen. Yeah, but I've according very, to the indictment, busy. you then tell this aide to move to other locations after telling your lawyers to say you'd fully complied with the subpoena when you hadn't. But before I send boxes over, I have to take all of my things out. These boxes were interspersed with all sorts of things. All right, so this is something that we knew existed, but hearing it in his own words really hits home the following points that, you know, his defense is really going to have to contend with. One, that he says on the tape that he knows the documents are highly confidential, and two, that he knows that they are still classified, that he did not declassify them, even if he, in his words, could have classified him while he was still president. So what do you make of this? Okay, so I have three major thoughts. So first, you're right. This does not uh, his defense that and his his claim that it wasn't actually the uh, the uh, documents in question that it was newspaper clip, clippings referencing this. It was things of that nature, not the actual classified documents that he said that about, about that conversation. Mm -hmm. That doesn't sound like what they're discussing. Mm -hmm. It sounds like what they're discussing mm -hmm. is actual documents. The, the, this, is, this is what the generals are doing or whatever. Yeah, hear the papers shuffling. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I don't know. I, I would tend to agree that that sounds highly bad for his legal case. However, I will say two other things. Again, 
Yes, Trump's unique um, contempt for just following rules and laws, getting him into trouble here, that's all fine. I'm not making excuses for him. I don't think he should be the nominee. I don't think he should be president again. I do have, but, but it seems like the genesis of him trying to show to those, the staffers, those aides, whoever those people were, he, was that he was trying to prove that he, unlike the Defense Department and Mark Milley, were disinclined to pursue war with Iran. Mm -hmm. And that is, to me, a much more significant issue, frankly, than the underlying dispute about who had whose documents when. Um, our, our federal government's eagerness to have war uh, independent from the political approval process, independent from Congress declaring it such and the president carrying it out, a just permanent martial bureaucracy that makes its own foreign policy is something Trump ran against and utterly failed to constrain or contain or battle in any way, shape, or form. But here we are again. Yeah. And that's a, that's a part of it. And then related to that, the third thing is that, well, how did CNN get this? How did the New York Times get this? I have to imagine someone in the prosecutor's office leaked it to them, which, you know, we're getting all really uppity here about, like, who has what document and what information where and this very illegal, like, but the government, the prosecutors can just, with impunity, hand, make, make their case, have their case argued in the press rather than in a courtroom at their discretion. Yeah, I mean, my feeling about that is it was maybe dirty play, it, but that's just... It, that's well, what people do. And uh -huh. I, I don't know. I, I think that that, that if, if the shoe were on the other foot, this is not like a partisan maneuvering. It's good. They're, they're going to try to make it difficult for Trump to get a fair mm -hmm. jury. They're, they're going to try to play it out in the press. That's strategically understandable. I, I mean, I don't really take that much issue with it. I think that your point about the, the focus here in the public's disinterest in Trump defending himself as the anti-war voice in the room um, is very, very interesting and significant. I mean, that really is the story, how we are collectively more invested in the potential conviction of a former president to take him out of the political process than the institution which has been driving this country, sucking mm -hmm. up the most of our um, national budget and thrusting us into foreign conflicts that cause million, literally millions of deaths around the world. And that isn't the story. That being said, there are understandable reasons why there's an investment in finding out what's going to happen to the Republican frontrunner. Um, I think this is one of the most recent polls, if not the most recent one, from Real Clear Politics. Um, average shows uh, that, uh, that Donald Trump has 52.2% of the vote. DeSantis is in second place with 21.4% of the vote. Pence is bringing up the rear, rear, rear with 5.7% of the vote, and everybody else is behind that. So to politically neuter the front runner is understandably mm -hmm. a significant news event. I guess my question to you is, do you think this new audio coming out in conjunction with everything else we know about the strength of the legal case against him will change anything about uh, his choice to run or the Republican Party's choice to kind of stay in this hands-off Trump sort of a place continuing to defend him against this prosecution? I don't think it's changing much from the political standpoint. You have some of his Republican challengers, like Chris Christie, who are really going after him on this stuff. So they're, they've already been hitting him hard. Then you have, you know, you have 
I mean, it's a range, right? Mike Pence is somewhere in between that he's not gone full Chris Christie, but he's certainly been critical of Trump. Then you have the DeSantis type people who don't are not saying any are not touching this with a 20 foot pole and just kind of hope that it's enough to take Trump down without them having to be the one to, to deliver a, the fatal blow with the knife in the back. Yeah. Um, I don't think that strategy makes any sense because that's like not like he's not he's not you got to push him if you want him to go. You got to all push him, and they're not going to do that. We were all there in 2016, and the people who pushed ended up just jettisoning themselves off the stage. Okay, but not pushing is not going to work. Yeah, well, I think that that's part of what's strategy. I mean, strategy. I think he's likely to be the nominee. It's, it's uh, yeah. just, that's what's going to happen. Well, this is how, over on Fox News, they're covering the story. This is Hannity talking about the recordings last night. He, well, number one, he's right about Hillary Rodham Clinton, top secret classified documents on our servers, uh, outlined extensively by Jim Comey in July of 2016, but no reasonable prosecutor would prosecute. Uh, now, while he did say, you know, this is stuff that he got from the military that would be highly confidential and secret, and says at another point, as president, I could have de declassified it. Now I couldn't. But now, you know, it would still be a secret. That does not confirm for me whether or not specifically this, this document was declassified or not. Uh, was that actually a real, the real document or was it a story that he was telling? Um, and my understanding is, is that that particular document was never found by the special counsel or by, you know, the raid at Mar-a-Lago. But I might be mistaken on that. I don't think I am. Yeah, I mean, you can try to uh, peck holes in this. Uh, obviously, a, a, the jury, judge, et cetera, are the ones who are going to decide on this. I, I, I can see what Sean Hannity is saying. I don't know that that's going to be the most persuasive. Uh, to me, when I hear that clip, it sounds like Trump is talking about classified materials that he, he says, still has. These are the papers. Yeah, the you can hear recording. the papers, you know, rustling. You can, you can hear this noise. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> going on really aggressively, I mean, and it sounds it could be other papers. It, it doesn't sound like it's other papers, so it sounds like those papers. But and again, I kind of understand why he he now there's a reason for him keeping these. At least, you know, why would you keep this? Why would you keep this? If you're listening to the, that whole conversation, the reason is now they're going to try to indict me as a warmonger. They're going to say Trump was crazy. Trump wanted to nuke Iran and everybody else. But no, I didn't want to. I didn't want to do that. They want to do that. Look at this. Look at this. They want to do yeah, that. Yeah. Look. And you know what? That's there's okay. That that there. I think there's some philosophical or moral legitimacy to that. Now it is clearly not what the law. The legal says. legitimacy so he, again, is again. He's the screwed issue. from the legal standpoint, but from the standpoint of grappling with a foreign policy apparatus that makes its own decisions, and uh, and you know doesn't consult. The elected representatives, let alone the American people, that is the, that is a huge, huge problem. It's one Trump is not fit to address, and I would rather him exit the stage so that someone else can try. But yeah. it is a problem. Yeah, that's I mean, my takeaway. He says these are the papers. He says this was done by the military and given to me. Given to me doesn't suggest. I, I went to the bodega and bought a New York Times and I'm reading about a story. Mm -hmm. No, given to me suggests this is a confidential document that was given to me. Moreover, there were obviously the writers in the room that he was talking to. I'm sure that their testimony will also corroborate this one way or another. And we will be reporting on all of that new information as it comes out. More rising for you after this. Stick around.
Fox News is back on top. The network reportedly reassumed its position in the number one primetime cable spot last week after MSNBC took over the spot as the country's leading network as the indictment of Donald Trump caused ratings to soar, according to Nielsen Media Data. Fox News averaged 1,664,000 viewers from June 12th to June 16th, with MSNBC averaging 856,000 and CNN averaging 628,000. Tucker Carlson's old 8 p.m. spot at the network will now be filled by Jesse Waters, who originally worked as a production assistant on The O'Reilly Factor at 24 years old. Now, according to the Daily Mail, his current show, Jesse Waters Primetime, began airing last year, has an average of 2.6 million viewers per night. Fox News has also reportedly fired all of Tucker Carlson's staffers who were still at the network following his ousting. But according to Mediaite, the eight staffers that remained at the network were let go, though they could receive, quote, enhanced severance if they stayed until July 14th. And then they still do have the ability to apply for other positions at Fox News. So it's not necessarily that they've all been shown the door. They might be ultimately moved to other shows. Several of the producers did. One of them departed. Uh, one or two of them departed with Fox or with uh, Tucker himself. And then another uh, was let go after that Chiron thing from last week. Oh, right. Sounds like he did that. Right. Um, uh, so, so the lineup is shifting thusly. Um, they, they haven't actually really added a new person. They're just kind of moving people around a little bit. Laura Ingram, who was later in the evening, she was after Hannity, she's now going to go first at, what, at 7? And, um, and then at 8, it's going to be Jesse Waters. Uh, 9 is Hannity. Uh, I think I'm getting this right. And then Gutfeld is going to um, move a little bit earlier. So they're, they're moving people to slightly different time slots, but it's not like this is the new new person, new star with a new show. It's it's the same shows and people who've just been So what do you take from this? The fact that Jesse Waters is in the Tucker Carlson slot, does that suggest that he is the biggest draw, that he is considered to be within Fox News, the most marketable person? Is he really a bigger draw than someone like Lori Ingram or Gutfield? I, my understanding was that Gutfield also had one of the highest ranking shows. Gutfield is huge, absolutely huge. Um, he's, uh, you know, he's a kind of comedian by mm -hmm. trade. Um, uh, I, I like the guy. I'm friendly with him. I've been on a show a number of times. It's wildly successful. It has a kind of late night vibe. Mm -hmm. That's how he sees it. Mm -hmm. So I don't think he would want to be necessarily any, any earlier than like 10 or something. I think that's where he feels um, he, he does his best work. Also, both Gutfeld and Jesse and a couple other people, they rotate who's doing the 5, the 5 p.m. show. So they're on. They're both on twice, twice an evening anyway. Um, Jesse Waters, uh, I, what I will say about him that I like is that he has been very good on privacy issues relating to tech, um, things of that nature. He, remember, he grilled Lindsey Graham on one of their banned TikTok bills that would, like, could, could theoretically, would give the government, it, it was like a new Patriot Act, essentially, mm. for the Internet. It was so misguided. And uh, he's been really leaning into that stuff, which I like. Um, obviously, you know, he has. I, I, I don't think he's exactly in a Tucker Carlson mode um, necessarily. We'll have to see how more of his foreign policy ideas develop. I, I've been watching a lot lately, and um, it's a lot of focus on Hunter Biden and, sure. and and Trump and what's going on. Kind of you know the news from a conservative standpoint. But, but are, are um, you I, I mean, I think he's a talented individual. By that choice of all of the people on the Fox News lineup, if you were asked the day after Tucker Carlson left, you expected to. Be, be his replacement. Is Jesse Waters a name that would have come to mind? 
Well, he already had a show, so if I, I was thinking they were going to have to find another person to add to mm. the roster. But mm. if they're just kind of rearranging the people they do have, he's clearly a big star and a big draw and is you know, doing well and has had a pretty meteoric rise from being a sort of production assistant, doing these kind of like man-on-the-street videos for Bill O'Reilly back in the day. Yeah, I mean, I was going to mention, I think— I first heard of Jesse Waters after he did a Man on the Street style segment in mm -hmm. Chinatown in New York, for which he was broadly criticized and for which he uh, ultimately offered an apology. I think that was back uh, during the 2016 I believe cycle. he apologized on O'Reilly's show. Yeah, Right. Because, I mean, the, the blowback was significant. It's, it's interesting to consider whether or not an apology would have been forthcoming today, given that we're in, a, I think, a very mm -hmm. different place uh, in terms of what flies publicly you know, wokeness, anything that smells of an apology or sensitivity to other people's culture is... You know that apologizing is woke. I, I well, think, it shouldn't be. I, people should apologize I think if they that today, up, the idea of doing a segment... And look, I'm, I'm saying this very neutrally. I just think the reality is today, if you went to the... Seg uh, and did a segment where you kind of talked about... You asked random Chinese Americans in Chinatown, like, is it the year of the dragon? And can I get a foot massage? Back then... There was a general consensus that that was trading in very flat cultural stereotypes in a way that was prejudicial. Today, I think you get a lot of people defending it, saying, hey, there's foot massage places in Chinatown. I can't ask about them. Why are you being so sensitive? This is woke. Maybe you disagree, but I have a hard time believing that this would be as seen as, as objectionable today as it was then. But the point is, at the time, many folks thought that was kind of going to be the end of his political arc. It seems like it was just the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, he's. Uh, there's no question. He's the. He's the guy now. He's in that um, really famous um, 8 p.m. slot, and uh, yeah, we'll have to see where it goes from there. So he recently shared some comments uh, about President Barack Obama's American perspective. Let's play those. Well, when you're the citizen of the world, you always think about the world instead of the United States. Remember, this is a guy whose father has roots in Africa. This is a guy who spent a lot of his childhood in Southeast Asia. Is that right? I think it's right. And then he was, ate a dog, Jesse. I didn't bring that up, <laughs> but I'm glad you did. And then spent a lot of time in Hawaii. Was that the last date to get a star in the flag? Not so sure about that, but... He's never really looking at things from an American perspective. He's always speaking to the world. Even when he's speaking to us, he's appealing to the world. Yeah, so I mean, that feels like a little bit of the vintage. I don't know how recent this clip actually uh, was, though. I don't, well, anyway. Yeah, I mean, that feels like a little bit of the vintage Jesse Waters that um, I once knew. It, this clip was apparently from earlier this week. I, I would say it used to be a thing that folks thought of as a positive that you would have a leader that had a global perspective, maybe one that spoke other languages or mm -hmm. had a comfort and ease in other parts of the world from a negotiation perspective. That seems like a, a benefit, especially if you want an anti-war president who's not going to stumble into conflicts because of making certain kinds of faux pas. It should go without saying that. It doesn't matter what order a state joined the United States of America. It is America. I'm sure there's plenty of Native Hawaiians that would 
love that not to be, not the, the trajectory of the country, not to be the imperialist trajectory that it was, but it is in fact a part of the United States of America. Um, and having lived abroad as someone who also lived abroad, I was born in Washington, D.C., and I would like to someone to tell me that I am insufficiently American because I had the privilege of having some other kinds of experiences in my youth. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's the kind of commentary that... Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of President Obama's views, obviously, or his policies. I don't think they it's because they originate from some other place. <laughs> there are plenty those, of bad Those foreign views. Hawaiian ideologies infecting the mind palace of our great president, Barack Obama. Oh, <laughs> uh, he just, he, yeah, his thinking is too Hawaiian. What would your thinking be if it was too Hawaiian? It'd be too, like... It would be laid back and anti-war <laughs> and delightful. I wish you were, I, maybe, I wish you'd spend a is little bit more a, time in Hawaii. Is that the Tulsi vibe? In some, in some, in some respects, although she has, also has some discreet, unique things about her upbringing that were separate and apart from Hawaii, mm -hmm. but she grew up in, I, I understand it, a very kind of conservative, uh, religiously conservative environment, um, and had some views that she later um, divested from, <laughs> shall we say? Uh, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, it, it will be interesting to see how Jesse Water, uh, Waters fares in that spot, whether or not he is subject to any kind of constraint or controls, the likes of which Tucker Carlson has ultimately said that he was under, um, or, or if he really picks up the mantle of um, Trumpism without the Trump, as it was described in one New York Times article, I think who really astutely characterized out, uh, uh, Tucker Carlson as embodying something of this movement that was separate apart from Donald Trump and is able to exist in this liminal space where he had a lot of credibility without tying himself directly to Trump. It almost captured the energy of why Trump was popular without needing to wed himself to that particular man. And it's something that he's really running with now that he's completely free from Fox News, where, as we know from the Dominion lawsuit disclosures, they had a lot of concerns about losing their audience if they went too negative against Donald Trump. So it'll be really interesting to watch, see what happens. We will be watching, and we hope you'll keep watching us. More Rising right after this. A U.S. Department of Justice watchdog said negligence and misconduct led to convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein's death in 2019. Mm. More breaking news for you. The U.S. Justice Department watchdog says negligence and misconduct by federal prison officers led to Jeffrey Epstein's death in 2019. The Federal Bureau of Prisons employees who were charged with guarding the accused sex offender, Mr. Epstein, did not search his jail cell as required and failed to check on him for hours before he killed himself in 2019. That's the US Justice Department's internal watchdog. In a scathing new report, Inspector General Michael Horowitz singled out 13 BOP employees for misconduct and dereliction of duties, saying that their actions allowed Epstein to be alone and unmonitored in his solitary cell inside Manhattan's Metropolitan Correctional Center from 10.40 in the evening on the 9th of August 2019 until he was discovered at 6.30 a.m. the following morning. He also criticised the Bureau for other serious operational flaws, such as failing to properly upgrade the Metropolitan Correction Centre's camera surveillance system and understaffing its facilities. Yeah, it's interesting to go back and look at the timeline of events leading up to his death. He was arrested on July 6th. Uh, he pled guilty on July 8th. He was assigned to the prison special housing unit known as the SHU on July 10th due to risk factors for suicidality and safety concerns related to him housing in the general population. Then on July 18th, 
eight days later. A federal, he was denied bail. And on July 23rd, prisoner officers found Epstein on the floor of his cell with a strip of bed sheet around his neck. He was subsequently transferred out of the shoe and placed on suicide watch in the hospital wing, where he was observed 24 hours a day by a staff member or a specially trained inmate companion. This is from a 2019 CNN article. He remained on suicide watch for 24 hours before being transferred to psychological, uh, uh, also, sorry, also in the hospital wing. Then on July 30th, he was transferred back into the shoe, re required to have an assigned cellmate. Um, and then on uh, July 31st, appeared in court, no sign of injury. So there was, I, I had forgotten that there was that initial finding of him with the bedsheet around his neck for which there was the intervention. So there was a clear indication that there was a risk here. And then after that, his cellmate was transferred out of his cell on August 9th. And then the um, the officers that are were to be discussed here, who were supposed to be checking in regularly on these shifts, who did not do so negligently, were assigned on August 9th and falsified their counts of having gone back and forth and checked on him in the in the cell. And then uh, and then he died right. uh, shortly thereafter. The New York Times describes the watchdog report as them finding a remarkable and largely unexplained succession of circumstances that you just laid out, um, allowing him to have to hoard extra blankets, uh, bedding, clothing, even after his initial attempt to hang himself. Um, they violated a standing order um, intended to prevent him from self-harm by allowing him to remain alone in his cell for a full day. Um, after one official sent an email to 70 employees warning them that this was very dangerous. So, yes, they undertook an exact series of steps that was going to make it possible for him to attempt to kill himself and maybe succeed again. And that's what he did. Yeah, I mean, and this is why so many people right. are skeptical of the circumstances. You know, the you know, did Jeffrey Epstein kill himself? Um, people put he killed himself in kind of these scare quotes, suggesting that it, it it was not actually a suicide. But even if it were a suicide, there's this question of whether or not it was purposefully allowed, knowing that he had suicidal ideology, because of what might come out if he were to actually testify and the number of incredibly important and influential it, and wealthy people that he had relationships with. The way I feel about this, though, what it what. What jumps out to me from reading all these reports and all the information about the circumstances is just the tremendous bureaucratic indifference to human life mm -hmm. that characterizes so much the prison system in general. Absolutely. I mean, people kill themselves in prison. People are murdered in prison. People are people traffic drugs in prison. We can't. You want to get drugs off our streets? We can't even get them out of our prisons. They can't keep drugs out of prisons. Um, which yeah. speaks to the futility of trying to keep them out of everywhere else. But this is going on all the time. You know, there are, there are gangs of, of criminals and Nazis and everything um, that is allowed to flourish and pr proliferate in prisons. No serious attempt to grapple with safety and violence. The cameras are always broken. There, there's so, for, so... For sure. And so it's worth noting that many people in prisons are, many people in jail are not convicted of crimes yet, in, including, yeah. frankly, Jeffrey Epstein was not yet convicted right. of a crime, and that there are people that are being held for pre-trial pre detention for years, like Khalif Browder, who died. He was arrested, he was charged with stealing a backpack, uh, and because of the length they had to wait for trial, ended up dying in prison before he was able, ever able to, to go to so trial. So people say, at you know, doesn't but, how, but it's, 
how could you accept it's way too convenient that the cameras weren't working and they forgot to check on him and he had all this stuff like that just but so some, I, but some they do sometimes they just do a bad job or I, they don't I, care I take your point. they don't care about him staying alive they're, 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 these are not the most like rigorously trained and well-paid and happy and greatest. I, I take your point, Robbie, but I don't think that this is that situation. This is not anonymous kid from New York, Khalif Browder. This is Jeffrey Epstein, who the whole world was watching as he was taken into custody. And given that we have seen... But the whole world are not the people in charge of the prison. Right, but the people in charge of the prison knew he had a suicide attempt, explicitly assigned him to increasingly safe wards, mm -hmm. put him in the hospital in a shoe to protect him and then in the hospitalized ward they after his. No, but they did, the point is that they did care and they did intervene and they did make a special acknowledgement of this person having a, an, an elevated suicide risk and also being someone of a public interest and put, put metrics into place to protect him. And then suspiciously, the reason why people are, this is a, this is a negligence case against these these guards. This is a negligence issue. Um, the the issue is why they did not do what they were told to do. So this one one corrections officer, Nova, uh, sorry, Tova Noel, a 31 year old officer at MCC, was you know had uh, two back to back eight hour shifts. He had been uh, employed as a correctional officer since about 2016, so a few years. It was him and an unnamed officer, officer number one. They did not perform a required 4 p.m. institutional count, according to videos, basically checking off that they went and they checked on him and they saw him there. And they falsified a slip saying that they did. Now, it's one thing to just slack off at your job. It happens. People do it. But to know that this is a high-profile individual of all of the of all of the cases to slack off knowing that you're going to get caught because this is one of the most famous people that has ever been in this prison that seems like an interesting choice and i think that is why there's so much suspicion around this particular i just think they event. didn't i just don't i think they didn't care um i think this is broadly characteristic of prison i'm sure there are better prisons and worse prisons but this seems broadly characteristic um well, meanwhile, a U.S. judge guarantee, uh, sorry, granted preliminary approval to J.P. Morgan Chase's $290 million settlement with women who said Epstein abused them and that the bank ignored the late financier's uh, sex trafficking. So, of course, this case is ongoing even without Jeffrey Epstein. Right. There is this effort in this Virgin Islands case to hold J.P. Morgan accountable for continuing to do business with Jeffrey Epstein at a time during which they allegedly should have realized that they were facilitating his ability to um, predate on these young women, girls, really. So, you know, and, and that case has yielded some interesting information. And I think from an institutional perspective is really useful to following up. But the fundamental truth is that the person who knew everything was Jeffrey Epstein. And because of, at minimum, gross negligence. Gross negligence, for sure. He is not here to talk. A very, a very typical, very usual gross negligence. I mean, they should keep looking in it, into it. If they find something more, some evidence of some desire on their part to have him die, or, or you know, so I, I know the, the full conspiracy, right, would be that someone slipped in to get him or 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 pay or I guess paid them or arranged it so that this would happen by all means if there's more evidence of that like let's pursue it um, it's just not that unusual to me 
I mean, didn't you just point out that there were an unusual number of um, linens being made avail available to him, especially given that he had already I was tried to hang himself? Times. No, it yeah. was, they should not have allowed him to do that, yes. Yeah, I mean, But know. they don't, I mean, I don't, I don't think they care that he was someone special. They're like, I go to the DMV, I'm someone special, I'm someone more special than me. They don't care. Like, no, they're not. If, they're if you're a corporation, if you're an institution, and you can be sued for negligence because you have contributed to the cause of death of someone who was in your institutional care. And it, you will care more if the person involved is famous, if they have a wealthy family that can have, has the means to see you and follow up, if you're gonna get a lot of negative press as a consequence of doing so, much more so than if you happen to let someone who was indigent, who didn't have family with resources, who was not a public figure, die. And so, yes, I'm not saying that they should care because corrections officers have uh, warm, fuzzy feelings in the bottom of their heart and are humanitarians. I'm saying that there is a financial incentive for these kinds of institutions to want to specifically not be on the hook for letting one of the most high-profile defendants in the history of America to die in their custody. And, in, and instead, instead of showing the perhaps average substandard level of care that you might expect in an institution like this, it was even less than that according to some of the, what these timelines and such suggest. That, that's all I'm saying. I think it shows when you're in the prison system, it doesn't matter who you are, how important you think you are, how wealthy you are, uh, the, the pathologically indifferent treatment can get anyone in the end. All right, well, we'll have more eyes for you right after this. Georgetown University announced on Monday that former Chief White House Medical Advisor Anthony Fauci will join its faculty this summer as a professor in its Infectious Diseases Division. Georgetown said this is an announcement, quote, starting July 1st, Fauci will serve as a distinguished university professor in the School of Medicine's Department of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases, an academic division that provides clinical care, conducts research, and trains future physicians in infectious diseases. This will be Fauci's first role since leaving a decades-long career in government late last year. Fauci said in the announcement, I'm delighted to join the Georgetown family. This is a natural extension of my scientific, clinical, and public health career, which was initially grounded from my high school and college days where I was exposed to intellectual rigor, integrity, and service-mindedness of Jesuit institutions. So this is where Fauci is landing. All right, Robbie. Apart from me personally not understanding why an 82-year-old is looking for another job <laughs> after such an illustrious career, help me understand why some people are going to be upset about this. Um, I think some people are going to be rashly furious, not just because of the controversial policies he oversaw, he recommended when he was the White House's lead coronavirus czar for the period of the pandemic. But given recent revelations and very serious questions we have, we've had on the show, guests have had in reporting done by Taibbi and Schellenberger and confirmed by the Wall Street Journal that, uh, that COVID very well may have come from a lab, the Wuhan lab, uh, as a result of a funding grant overseen by, administered by the agency that Dr. Fauci oversees. Um, that's not been absolutely and utterly proven yet, and the federal government tried to almost push back in some weak way by producing a report that says, we don't know anything more. Uh, which they, you know, issued mm -hmm. on a Friday. And again, it was not, this, this is not the underlying intelligence. We want to know the things, not a summary of what they think they know. I could go on about that forever, but there are real questions for Fauci and his role, it, he's the chief, he's the foremost advocate of doing this research. He was in charge of the agency that made the grants. Um, 
Look, he, I, there's not been any, you know, kind of proceeding yet in terms of holding mm -hmm. him accountable for this. So he's a free citizen and he can take a job as a educator if he wants. But um, I would be, I would have serious reservations about having in a, a pivotal educational role relating to infectious diseases, the man whose like number one philosophy is we should do research that may have caused the pandemic in the first place. I mean, <laughs> sure. I, I, it does seem to me there are two separate things here. Look, I, I have in, uh, attended institutions where any number of war criminals have regularly been invited and sure. celebrated. Well, and this is well in keeping with that. You're yeah. absolutely right. Sure. So, I mean, there's a part of me that says, okay, this is just par for the course. That doesn't right. mean it's okay, um, but it does seem kind of par for the course. And I think it does really speak to the significant divide in public opinion on a man like Anthony Fauci, that his presence at Georgetown would be seen as a real boon for many people at the institution and many students seeking to study there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in a new NIH FOIA release on animal welfare concerns, reportedly, there is a message being sent on Fauci's beagles, reading, someone needs to light a fire to get info about the beagle issue, perhaps a deputy. Another email to the White Coat Waste Project reads, Fauci's own NIH department wasted your money on many dog experiments and locked beagle puppies in cages. U.S. Right to Know reporter Emily Kopp tweeted yesterday about the release, one of the clearest examples of media bias with regard to Anthony Fauci. In response to White Coat Waste advocacy to stop dogs from undergoing unusually cruel lab experimentation, some reporters portrayed Fauci as the victim because he received a lot of angry phone calls for him. Science journalists portrayed opposition to experimentation on dogs as anti-science. These emails show that 22 reporters were pitched NIH's side of the story. While Fauci was the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, the organization provided grants for medical studies using the dogs as test subjects. However, the NIAID denied funding one particular project in which sedated vehicles had their heads placed in mess cages so sand flies could bite them. Yeah. I don't like it. I yeah. don't like it. I mean, that's another, this is another aspect of <laughs> Fauci's legacy that is um, controversial, that you don't hear a lot if you're reading about him and consuming media about him in other spaces because, I mean, look, he's a, he's a saint. He's, a, a, he's, he's been canonized in the, in the establishment literature about the pandemic. Yeah, look, animal testing is a controversial subject for, because people like animals and they don't want there to be animal cruelty. At the same time, they don't want to use untested products uh, and be putting creams and lotions and things on their skin that have no, uh, that haven't been tested mm -hmm. for their own safety. There are medical applications. No one seems to be overly concerned about the, you know, thousands, maybe millions of lab rats that get killed every year. The focus does seem to come down when it's an animal that is either closer to humans, like chimpanzees, or simply cuter, um, like beagles. And it's understandable why this is a story. But again, it does feel a little picked and chosen. Like, are the people very concerned about the beagles being tortured that have a connection to Anthony Fauci? broadly concerned about animal welfare, including the welfare of animals that we regularly consume and are treated deplorably in the context of meat manufacture. I don't know. I, I don't mean to be one abiding all of this. I would love to see this be a broader, more generalized concern, um, both because of the animal cruelty aspects of meat and the environmental implications of the meat industry. But I suspect that this just feels like a, like a 
like a cherry picked issue that happens to have a target of a political figure in Anthony Fauci that has many legitimate criticisms to be made out of him, but this just feels like, <laughs> you know what I mean, a little bit of a, of a fabrication. Uh, fine. The, yeah, what I'm emphasizing is the funding for research for an un, un, unsafe conditions at the Wuhan lab that potentially caused 10 or 20 million deaths globally. Yeah. That seems like something you should not continue to have a career over if it can be borne out, which sure. obviously it has not been at this time, and we want more information. And Congress passed a law, and Biden signed it, requiring the publication of the information the government has. They have not complied with that in the least bit. That report on Friday is is total BS. It's, it's offensive that they thought that that was what Congress's intention was with that law. So we want more information. We need, at this point, all the efforts should be for verifying whether those three scientists, Ben Hu, the deputy of Xi Jinping, actually did contract COVID-like symptoms in November 2019, because that would be a smoking gun. And the Wall Street Journal has reported that that is the case. Mm -hmm. The government report said it, it was very waffling on that. They said it might have been the case, but they couldn't confirm it, and that maybe they weren't COVID-like symptoms exactly, just respiratory symptoms. Well, what is the difference? Like, mm -hmm. they're, 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 it's hard to tell COVID, you know, COVID said some people lose taste and smell and some people don't. Some people have a fever, some people don't. It's, you know, it's the usual gamut of cold flu-like symptoms. Um, the antibodies thing from later makes no sense, as the guest we had on yesterday, I believe, mm -hmm. pointed out, because by then, by the time they did the antibody tests, somebody would have been statistically likely. So the guest yesterday pointed out that it was implausible that nobody in the office would have tested positive for antibodies. In March of 2020. Common uh, COVID was at that at time. At Wuhan at that time. Yeah. So even if it hadn't come from a, from a lab, just they would have, someone would have been statistically likely to have contracted it by that point. So that's very interesting. And... I hope the government, again, is working to verify those things. Maybe they already know them and they just haven't released them, which is the sense I get, and they should because we deserve to know. Yeah. So Georgetown has not canceled Fauci, a victory for cancel culture oh, warriors. Gosh. Yeah, they haven't gotten around to canceling <laughs> Fauci yet. I, well, you know, we'll just just wait until he, you know, we'll see what his Halloween costume is on, on when, he, when he's hitting the fraternity party circuit. You know, we'll see. Uh, we'll see what he does. Maybe both he and Jesse Waters will get together and dress up as the Wuhan virus. Oh, More rising <laughs> right after this. Senator Marco Rubio has stated that whistleblower David Grush is not the only government official and whistleblower to have come forward with UFO claims. We'll say there are people that have come forward to share information with our committee over the last couple of years. I would imagine some of them are potentially some of the same people that perhaps he's referring to. I want to be very protective of these people. A lot of these people came to us even before these protections were in the law for whistleblowers to come forward. Sorry, people who have had firsthand knowledge who claim to have firsthand knowledge of seeing this type of thing or, or have firsthand knowledge or firsthand claims of certain things uh some are public figures you know and and you've heard from them in the past others um you know have, have not shared publicly and so we're trying to gather as much of that information as we can but I, and the reason why i'm being cautious i'm not trying to be evasive but i am trying to be protective of these people some of these people still work in the government and frankly a lot of them are very fearful fearful of their jobs fearful of their clearances fearful of their career 
and, and, and some, frankly, are fearful of harm coming to them. So that category of people who have firsthand knowledge, who say they have actually seen these kinds of things, do you find many of them credible? Well, I don't find them either not credible or credible because we have no basis. We understand some of these claims are things that are beyond sort of the realm of what any of us has ever dealt with. Rubio also posed a question about the incentives of some of these whistleblowers. I find most of these people at some point, or maybe even currently, have held very high clearances and high positions within our government. So you start at, you do ask yourself, like, what incentive would so many people with that kind of um, qualification, these are serious people, have to come forward and make something up? Now, James Comer, of course, announced that there's going to be an investigation following the, the grocery revelations. And that investigation is going to be read by, uh, led by two um, uh, GOP reps, Anna Paulina uh, Luna of Florida and Tim Burchett of Tennessee, who has previously made claims about a government cover-up involving a, a UFO. So I, I think lots of folks are kind of in line with what Rubio is saying, that I don't obviously know what the truth is here, but the fact of ha having so many credible, generally speaking, people of uh, who are high up in various agencies right. being willing to come forward and give this sort of testimony is credible in and of itself. It suggests that there potentially should be a there there, at least to the extent that it justifies having some kind of hearing. And the question is, who is going to testify at that hearing? We don't know any details about witness lists or things like that as of yet. But the hope is that it's instead of it being this kind of levels of hearsay, that someone with firsthand knowledge of what has been claimed, that there is potentially a fully intact vessel, a piece of a vessel, or even some uh, alien material, biological material in, in custody, will come forward and speak to that. Right. And Rubio talked there about the difficulties in getting those the people with direct knowledge to speak. You know, they rationally fear for their for their jobs, for their clearance. You know, does does they're worried that indicating they saw they might have seen something personally does that indicate that you're there's something wrong with you psychologically from the government standpoint and thus you're not fit to have a, a the the clearance that you have that kind of thing mm -hmm. uh, so it speaks to the difficulty and I appreciate Rubio being careful there saying you know I don't want to I, I don't I don't know and I don't want to name people but but at some point we're just we're not going to advance this uh, the the interests of fact finding here at all unless some people who maybe they're afraid for their jobs. I mean, again, if, they, if they're able to demonstrate conclusively that the U.S. government does have knowledge or does have an actual craft or an alien, um, a pilot's uh, remains or something like that, and, and you're the person who actually brings that to attention, I mean, you're, you're going you're gonna to do okay professionally. I mean, maybe you're going to find work outside government or something. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. So be, be, be unafraid. Um, the truth is important, and we're not going to know it. We're not going to have enough people... Accepting it's just it's going to stay in the realm of that's very interesting. I don't know unless someone comes forward more conclusively and not just comes forward and says, well, I talked to someone who knows something. What do you make of the fact that it seems like the uh, elect elected representatives who are spearheading this effort, who are pushing for this and who seem to be giving comment on the question of whether or not there is extraterrestrial life do seem to be all uh, Republicans? It's a good question. Um, I mean, look, the Republican Party, I've commented on this before, the Republican Party is becoming the home of the skeptics in general. Um, the Republican Party is the party that has lost faith in institutions, the establishment, the mainstream. 
Um, it used to be a little bit more divided. You know, you had Republicans were always very hostile to like the educational establishment, universities, the media, even going back to the 80s and 90s. Uh, but they wouldn't have been necessarily distrustful of, of the CIA or the FBI, or law enforcement, um, national security advisors. The whole deep state idea is fairly new. I mean, now I think it's very solidified in the Republican consciousness that opposition to the, the, these establishments are out to get you. I would so say if it's, you're, it's new as a mainstream Republican Party talking point. It's very old as a leftist. Right, no, what I mean, it's, it's new. Yes, that, that's yeah. what I'm saying. It's yeah, new okay. as something that's at home on the, sure. the right um, in Republican circles and is pretty across the board. It's not like a, it's not like a, just something some fringe Republicans or something believe in. It's a, it's pretty core to the DNA, the DNA of the GOP at this point. So that's, so that's where people, I mean, it, right. It's not an accident really that even though the, the lab leak, the kind of COVID origin idea doesn't really have, there's not partisan dimensions to it. Really. It doesn't, it's not like, there's not something riding on it for the Republican party, for the democratic party, but because you just have a more skeptical. Democrats are the people who listen to authority, mm -hmm. and the re and the relevant authorities were saying no. It came from a uh, animal, probably yeah. that. Well, it is worth market. noting. So just I mean, like that, that's why the aliens thing is not surprising to me being taken up by Republicans. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear that, but I also think generally uh, people have a little put, keep aliens and UFOs in a different part of their brain than the CIA killed Kennedy. I don't know. I I, I don't think that it. The, the kind of newfound democratic fidelity to uh, at the FBI because they are going to get Trump or whatever necessarily conflicts with an interest in aliens. There, there, there could be an argument. I, I, I could see an argument that those people who think that this is all a grand distraction believe that one party has more of an investment in that distraction than another. Uh, it would be interesting to, to see how that over pans time, out. I mean, I agree with you. I don't think... Aliens really, the the UFO issue, also doesn't have really any partisan. Doesn't have significant. No, it shouldn't. Partisan, but it seems to. But it will to, over time. It, it, well, it will it, it's, it's happening time. right now. I mean, I don't. I can't name a single um, living Democrat right. who's really weighed on any of these issues. And to be clear, most Republicans haven't either. Right. But it is worth noting that Harry Reid of Nevada, hotbed of that kind of alien activity, that, that part of the country, um, did have an interest in these sort of issues. Obviously, he's deceased, so we don't know how he would weigh in on, on the, the Democratic cycle. audiences, viewers, consumers of Democratic news sources, Democratic constituencies, I think are not broadly interested in this stuff as much. They, they were historically, it was not, there was not a partisan breakdown. But over time, what I'm saying is the people who care a lot about that are going to sort themselves into the Republican Party, where all the other skeptical contrarian people are. Maybe. Seems to me that uh, the two big alien movies of the last years were Nope and Wes Anderson's Asteroid City, mm -hmm. which I suspect lean very left in terms of their, or very liberal at very least. Asteroid in terms City of their is, audience. It's like a nostalgia aliens thing. Sure. Right? Yeah. I didn't see it yet. Yeah, but Nope is very contemporary. Nope was Obviously, the, uh, that's the, um, um, Black leads and some, um, political content it's in, it's in the family of films with, uh, Get Out and, right, it's, it's the by same. the same writer, director, yeah. 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 All right. Well, let us know what you think. Is there a partisan angle happening there? Are there more skeptical people aligning on the right? And we'll have more rising for you right after this. New NBC News reporting reveals Kamala Harris holds the record for the worst vice presidential rating in NBC polling history. 
at a net negative 17 points. Yikes. Harris spoke last week at a 2024 campaign event for abortion access. Let's watch some of her speech. But let's always take a moment to also see what we have achieved thus far while we clearly see the moment that we are presently in. So... Uh, climate protesters diverged on a keynote address given by the vice president yesterday. They accused her of supporting the fossil fuel industry at the expense of the planet. Meanwhile, that same NBC News polling revealed 68 percent of voters are concerned that President Biden does not possess the necessary mental and physical health to serve as president, with 55 percent saying they have major concerns. Yeah, so Kamala Harris, eloquent as always in that speech. Look, at this point, I don't understand what's going on. Is it that she has a speechwriter who hates her? Is it that she genuinely thinks those kinds of circular rifts? Um, we're all here to be here together. And it's important while we're together to acknowledge the togetherness of us being as an ensemble in this room. And when we're in this room, we're of the room, in the room together. As an, Like, who is telling her that that is a meaningful way to communicate with people. It, it seems just, like she does it right. It, when It's not just off the cuff. She's reading prepared just reading. remarks. So this is what I'm saying. Like, Can you someone imagine her going her through, there? going through the scripts they've written for her and going, this is brilliant. Oh, more of this. Oh, my favorite tautology. Yeah, it's, it's wild. So I, there either is someone with very, very poor judgment on her staff or someone who hates her on her staff. And I don't know which is worse. Is it you? <laughs> <laughs> it's that meme uh, you went up, Fred, removing the mask. It was Brianna Joy Gray all along. I was once doing my Kabul impression at a dinner, and I, people were so impressed by it that I, I, yeah. it could it could just be that it's me. I'm I'm writing them, but I mean, so that aside, obviously, substantively. I think the environmental protesters point to how much discontent there is with the Biden administration from the left. He coerced people into voting him for him despite not being especially popular with the electorate in 2020 because anybody but Trump. And also he held out that we were at a climate crisis precipice and that if you had another four years of Trump, we were going to get ourselves into a hole that we were never going to be able to dig out of and it was going to be the end of the world, et cetera. He has largely failed on those climate promises despite claiming repeatedly that Build Back Better was enough simply because technically speaking, it might be the largest number of uh, largest volume of climate spending ever in uh, American history. So they're getting battered by all sides. And the question is whether or not the Democratic Party is going to stick with this particular ticket, given these historically low favorability ratings. What do you think? Vice President Kamala Harris, net negative rating, minus 17. Um, well, if Trump would say, wow, I've never seen numbers like that. <laughs> Wow. Which is ironic because he was a historically unfavorable candidate. Yeah. Are we just at a point where? I mean, look, I, it's just too much work to replace her. I, I don't think they'll do it. I, I think it's uh, it's fantasizing to think that they'll do it. They it will it will generate the kind of bad press that they are just allergic to taking on. Yes, it would probably worse do than a, this. But they think of all the CNN and MSNBC people who are like, you're racist for doing this. Not if they replace her with a black the person. the first black woman. Not if they replace her with some other notable minority person. Yeah, they also, have to have one of those also, ready the, to go. The, 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 the talking heads can sit there and scream and holler all they want, but literally the only black people who care are named Joanne Reed and whomever else they've got but, at these stations. No, the, the, she, has no agree, organic, she has no organic black constituency. But they don't know that. They think she does. 
They, no, they care don't. about no, mainstream. They, they care they about mainstream approval, and they want they want nice. They want cable news boostering they the Biden they administration. They don't think she does. They want her to, and so they weaponize her identity to try to convince people that they have to like yeah. Kamala Harris and to insulate and protect Kamala Harris. But nobody outside of her friends who happen to work at the news organizations or who happen to work in politics believe her to have any natural constituency. And everybody who watched the 2020 primary knows she has no natural constituency. Because the woman didn't win a single state after coming out strong, I think, polling uh, in for second place, I think, when she first announced with one of the largest, maybe the largest uh, crowd mm -hmm. at her announcement. She went from that peak. She peaked within like a week of her announcement to having to drop out of the Democratic primary before I, California then, because she was polling third place in her own state Biden, behind Andrew Yang. Biden and Harris staffers probably think. Oh, they just—she's being rejected because she's a black woman, who cares? and the country is racist. Okay, and the country is Which, racist. So, so who are we going to get to replace her so that Joe Biden can win? This is why they're not going to replace no, her. That's I, what I'm saying. I, 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 I don't, I do not understand that. Like, I, I feel like you're, you're conflating the, the desired narrative, the narrative that they're pushing, that her, that the Biden administration and the Democrats are pushing, with the. Real narrative, and at the point at no, no, which no, no, I'm just saying that's the narrative they believe, and they're no, the ones no. who make the decisions. I don't think it's the narrative they believe. I think it's oh, the narrative they're they pushing. And the okay. second they, if they internally decide that they want to abandon some aspect of that ticket, Biden or Kamala, then they stop pushing it, and no one else keeps saying it because no one else believes it or cares about it. I don't and think they they're self-aware to know that. They can flip the narrative on a net. So maybe it's true that they're not self-aware enough to realize that Biden could lose, or maybe they don't give a crap that Biden could lose because they didn't give a crap about Hillary Clinton's historical unfavorables and. Tim Kaine, remember that guy who gave a crap about him? What was he bringing who? to the ticket? <laughs> exactly, Tim Kaine in the membrane. So I, I, my, my only point is that if the Democratic Party decides they want to abandon this little ticket, this effort, I think they will have no problem coming up with an excuse to get rid of Kamala Harris and Joe Biden both. The question is whether the Democratic Party is going to have the insight that they are in a real struggle bus situation. And will they care more about actually winning the election, or do they care more about preserving their power and the institutional actors that they feel like they owe something to? That. I think there is no way on earth they replace her. Biden, if he obviously would be replaced if he was defeated, but there'll be no conscious effort to dump him on the Democratic establishment's part. On, on the contrary, there will be every effort to preserve and prop him up and, and prevent all challenges to him and to his authority. There will be no—they they will yeah. not allow debate. They will not allow dissent. They will not—they they will, you know, be unwilling to answer basic questions about his age and his competency and his popularity and ditto for Kamala. I think they—I I, I think the staff are identity politics type people who just—who— who, who could never deign to disappoint Joy Ann Reed? Sadly, I, I, I don't think I don't I don't think it's that. I think they're status quo people who want to do the status quo. I, I I don't know. Like the whole point of identity politics, the reason why it's so pernicious, is because it is being it's weaponized in service of an idea. These people, nobody has a sincere commitment to any of this stuff. Democrats don't are like warm, fuzzy, deeply caring about black people. They don't think that Kamala Harris being in the White House is uplifting the interests of black people and South Asians all across America. They just sat down with Modi and, and half of Democratic Party said glowing things about this guy like he's a free speech 
hero um, who doesn't have a huge Islamophobia problem in his own country. This is not this is not a Democratic Party who gives a crap substantively. They're only using it to serve their purposes. And the second that Kamala Harris stops serving their purposes, they'll drop it like a hot potato, just like they've dropped the interests of I mean, black people was, historically repeatedly over American any history. Any electoral interest or goal? I mean, they. She was there to sit next to Joe right. Biden and make his make another white man winning not look so bad. That was it. And by the way, they weren't even going to pick her. They were going to pick uh, Amy Klobuchar until, oops, George Floyd protests happened, and she happened to have been the DA to, who let the man who killed George Floyd off the hook years ago uh, back in Minnesota. So here we are. Yeah. They didn't have to pick either of them. They didn't have to pick a woman or a minority. They could have done whatever they wanted, but they're not self-aware enough to know that. That's what I think. No, wait a minute. Let's be really clear. They didn't pick a woman. Joe Biden was the nominee. So this idea that like the most important thing ever is identity politics is betrayed by the fact that they picked a, a white guy who's been in the Congress voters since picked he was the nominee. 39 years old. The no, establishment no, and in fact, we should, I wish we could roll president. this clip. We're not going to have time to, to pull it up. But there was a fascinating interview that David Plouffe gave on MSNBC or CNN earlier this week, I forget which, in which he fully says out loud and acknowledges explicitly, if it weren't for Barack Obama calling up Amy Klobuchar and um, Pete Buttigieg to drop out of the race, Bernie Sanders would have been the nominee. They did not pick the, the electorate. I'm, I'm not saying that obviously many, many people voted for Joe Biden, but, but for those two dropping out of the race, but for Barack Obama picking up the call and consolidating the field so that there was now a, a, a majority of conservative Democrats against the plurality that was the progressives that were in the independents that were interested in voting for Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders would have been the nominee. And that's, that's um, David Plouffe was the Obama's campaign manager, I forget his uh, title, who was saying that at the time. This was just an interview earlier this week. So let's just be nuanced with what the narrative actually is. There has been there was a choice to ultimately consolidate behind the the, the candidate that was not going to be a challenge to the establishment, just like we're seeing now a resistance to debates with people like RFK Jr. and Marianne Williamson, who have positioned themselves as challengers to the establishment. Just like as we speak, I'm getting dogpiled on the internet for suggesting that anyone has the right to vote for a third party candidate I mean, like Cornell West in the right, general I was bringing, election. I was, I was bringing that up to show that the, I don't think the voters care very much about the race and gender of the candidate. So you bringing up that Bernie would have won isn't actually going against what I was saying. No, he's I'm also saying that a white I, I'm man. agreeing with yeah, you. Yeah. I'm agreeing with you that the Democratic nobody cares about right. that stuff. But the Democratic Party uses it as a gloss to justify their agenda. I mean, I just it's the irony is I hosted an event with Norm Finkelstein last night, who is a you know, a, a, a strident critic of identity politics. And he has this critique, and I have mine of identity politics, but where we differ is that I want to be very, very clear. No one should buy into the idea that anyone sincerely cares about the identities of the people that they're talking about when they weaponize identities in the way that they do. Just like the Southern strategy and conservatives historically talking, doing white identity politics, they're not sincerely invested in the well-being of poor working class whites. They don't give a crap, but they're going to say, they're going to use, stoke racism and fears and say, you know, this is your country and rah, rah, rah to make them vote for them. And I think it's naive. Like when you, when you invest in the idea that either side is legitimately invested in the well-being of the groups that they're using to advance their political agenda, on some level, you you are 
playing into their game, playing into the idea that anybody should be listening to these narratives in the first place, when the reality is we should be following the money and look at who is actually being materially benefited by the policies of both of these parties. And I think the answer to that is the 1% regardless of the color. The color isn't black, white, or anything else. It's green. Mm. Well, here's what the ladies of The View had to say in defense of Harris's speeches from about a month ago. Let's watch. Off script and, and ad-libbing or, or improving, and if that's the case, she needs to stay on script. If it's her speechwriter, they need to change yeah. the speechwriter. I would add that as a lawyer, you're generally told when you're speaking that you speak in threes because that's what people remember. So if you're going to talk about a car, you talk about the car, the red car, the fast red car. I guess that's some interesting advice. You're you're a former attorney. What's going that, on with the red car? That's her justification for how the Kamala fast red Harris car. I already forget it. I, I guess in I... Kamala Harris has been getting criticism for the redundancy in her speeches, and not just the redundancy, the vacuousness of it. She never says there you go. The, anything. The vacuous redundancy of her speeches. <laughs> Three things. You're doing it right now. So, the, the point is, like, you, you can sit here, and I've said this to other people who I really like in politics, when things aren't going their way. You can argue that it's not fair that things are going your way. You can argue that the crit critique that you're getting is unfair, that it's because of sexism or racism or whatever. But at the end of the day, you have to respond to the reality. And now, three years into this presidency, two and a half years into this presidency, whatever it's been, Kamala Harris has historically low favorability ratings. There comes a time when you stop trying to explain why you should actually like her and try to figure out how she can get herself in a position where she's better liked. I expect the Democratic establishment answer will continue to be, it's your fault, you the people, for not believing in her more. We'll have more Rising right after this. This is this a new Pizzagate? New York City is cracking down on coal wood-fired pizzerias. The New York City Department of Environmental Protection has written new rules that would order pizzerias using coal ovens to cut carbon emissions by 75%. Department spokesman Tim Timbers, ironically named, said Sunday, all New Yorkers deserve to breathe healthy air and wood and coal uh, coal-fired stoves rather among the largest contributors of harmful pollutants in neighborhoods with poor air quality. The rule could require pizzerias with these kinds of ovens that were installed before May of 2016 to buy emission control devices. Here's how one New Yorker reacted to the coal oven crackdown. You heard of the Boston Tea Party? Well, this is the Boston, New York, this is the New York Pizza Party. Give us pizza or give us death. Give us pizza or give us death. Give us pizza or give us death. The owner of one Brooklyn pizza restaurant says he's already spent $20,000 on an air filter system. Predicting the new mandate, owner of pizza joint Polly G's in Greenpoint said, oh yeah, it's a big expense, the New York Post writes. Uh, and Barstool Sports founder Dave Portnoy had this to say about the news on coal ovens. You know what? Pizzerias use coal ovens all the best. All the best. John's of Bleecker, Patsy's, Tatano's, you name it. Any pizza place, they're like, oh, this is Manhattan. This is old school. This is what people think about when they think of NYC. They have a coal oven. 
They've been grandfathered in. They've been there for 100 years minimum, most of them. That was some language we don't like to repeat here on Rising, but uh, I understand the frustration. Look, I, I, isn't is this not a little bit of a of a bait and switch with the oh the. The, the the mainstream media went nuts or like made fun of conservatives for saying they're coming for your for your guests. It's outrageous. This is this is fascism in the streets. Oh, okay. I, you know, look, I I agree with this. Why are you saying, oh come on to me? This man made a comparison to the Boston Tea Party, which is a yeah. foundational event of our entire right. country that led to the Revolutionary War. And ye gads, if there's not a revolution in the streets of New York City, <laughs> because they're coming for our coal uh, fired. Mm -hmm pizzerias, then I don't know that I can, can sit here and call myself a New Yorker. Deep state, deep dish, <laughs> you do the math. But look, I, you know, imposing, I don't want to impose more. I mean, restaurants, New York restaurants hit horrifically during the pandemic. Yeah. Small business owners, um, it's bad times. I don't want to be imposing additional costs on them, especially by the New York City Department of Environmental Protection. This is just kind of like a rule they invented. Did Was this, wait, it was there. Unlike all meeting. the other rules, which are coming down on the stone of Hammurabi. No, I mean, <laughs> no, it's legislation. You can have community engagement. These are, I presumably, just more bureaucrats, not. They, if, they have, if they made the rule, then they have the authority to promulgate rules. The, the oh, yes. authority the to make rules. Only promulgates delegated to rules they have the authority to make. It, yes, yes, that's it's like agency law. You delegate people have rulemaking authority that's been delegated to them, and they make these rules. Now that's not a defense of the rule in of itself. If it's really true that the kind of um, uh, filtration systems that are being mandated here cost twenty thousand dollars, that's obviously an incredible expense. And I I think that there should be some kind of subsidy program if there really is that kind of environmental risk. I was reading another article I think in the Post where um, one pizzeria said, Yeah, I and I went ahead and installed this stuff. It was expensive. On the upside, he said, quote, my neighbors are much happier. I had a guy coming in for years complaining that the smoke was, you know, going right into his apartment. And I haven't seen him since I got the scrubber installed. So, you know, I would like to be, I like to see the science. I Googled around. I couldn't really find much about the nature of the pollution, the kinds of harms that's, that's uh, that are being created by it, the health effects that are being um, uh, created by all of the smoke. But if we can agree, you know, if it is, it is the case that there's a real negative health implication here. But I think it's right for people to put the filtration devices on and that the government or whatever should subsidize um, the cost of that health intervention, public health intervention. Yeah, I don't think you should, you know, you can't have your chimney pointed at somebody's window and shove your smoke into their um, residence. But, um, you know, I mean, th these are... Um, these are, you know, beloved New York establishments. The, the, I, I, I would think changing the cooking implement is going to have a, could theoretically have a significant impact on the quality of the pizza or what it tastes like. If you, you know, if you have a sing signature style or taste, all of that um, for your pizza. This, I'm reading the New York Post article about this. Um, I'm all for responsible environmental practice, but tell Al Gore to take one less private jet or something. I think that's also entirely true, that it seems like a proportionality issue. Mm -hmm. We covered the story of the Kalamazoo paper plant, which has been spewing toxic chemicals into the environment, causing um, thousands, I believe the number was, of infant deaths uh, in the city. Uh, there are uh, just a handful of companies that are responsible for a huge percentage of U.S. Uh, air pollution. And obviously, airplanes are extremely um, toxic to the air quality. 
all of these things are true, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that you shouldn't be targeting some more localized harms as well, though. So, yes, this wouldn't be my priority, but the New York City uh, Department of whatever, of, of air quality or whatever this was, um, can't control private jets that Elon Musk takes, so they're doing what they can do. And it does seem from some of these anecdotes in this piece, which is critical of the law, that there are New Yorkers who are also New Yorkers whose thoughts, feelings, and health matters too, who are going to be benefited by this and who are, have objected in the past to the negative uh, consequences of pizza smoke. Mm. So this seems like an easy fix. If, if, the, if it's really a, a health issue, public health issue, then we can collectively pay for it to be accommodated and not to have those costs fall, fall disproportionately on proprietors. I think that's very reasonable. The report says if, um, I'm looking at the report itself now, 75% uh, reduction, if 75% reduction is not feasible or a control device is unable to be installed, the restaurant must reduce emissions by at least 25% or provide an explanation for why controls cannot be installed. Uh, a city official said, about a well under 100 restaurants would be affected by the proposed right. rule. Right. So it's a very small number of restaurants, which cuts both ways. You know, how big is the problem if it's only a few restaurants? But you know, also it's only a few restaurants, and maybe this is one of those. It kind costs. of sounds like you'll be able to weasel out of it if you yeah. complain enough. Well, that's not great either, because yeah. as I always say, I want rules to be uniform and enforced uniformly, not. If you know a guy or you can complain more sure. or you have more access to better representation or something, you can kind of get out of it. That's like the worst of all. Sure. Well, I did see that Eric Adams, had, mayor of New York City, obviously had a little bit of a sense of humor about that. He said after the pizza was thrown over the gates, I think that was of Gracie Mansion, uh, that next time just please throw vegan pizza. He's very famously vegan and he wants to be able to take advantage of the free slice. What kind of uh, piece of pizza do you want being thrown over the gate to your mansion, Brianna? Uh, Gluten-free and vegan, please. Gluten and I'm vegan. very fun at parties. I'm a big <laughs> ham and pineapple person myself. Um, my favorite, I went to college. Uh, I spent a lot of years in Boston area, and I really love Papa John's. That's a hot take a little bit, but I became very fond of Papa John's. And I like a Papa John's sausage, olive, and onion. Mm. My order. Interesting. <laughs> More rising right after this. Social media, Twitter specifically, flipping out over a viral video going around of actor and comedian Roseanne Barr, who appears to be engaging in really overt Holocaust denial, so she's being attacked for that. But we just went and watched the entire clip, and this is such a clear case of misleading context being used to smear someone unfairly. Yeah, yeah my former colleagues at Jelani flagged this for us. He wrote on Twitter, this needs a community note. Roseanne is Jewish. Two, she's referencing a debate about censorship, not what she believes. And three, why do people feel okay being so misleading on this website? So we're going to play some of this clip with more of that conversation that's that's then has been on social media, so that you can see the full context. There's always been a ceiling on on speech, hasn't there? In a way, of course, nobody wants to hear the real truth. They're horrified. They'd rather go with. It's easier. And uh, like for the real truth that, you know, and I'm glad that they did set up all these guidelines so that we 
only are allowed to speak the truth. And the truth is that Biden got 81 million votes by winning 36 counties. And that is just incredible. It really, really is. And um, that of these 81 million supporters who gave him more, more votes than any president has ever gotten before, he came with a mandate from these 81 million voters. And, uh, you know, I, I'm just glad that they were very careful to make sure that nobody could um, detract from that proven truth. You know what I mean? Like, what do you mean? Like that nobody... That they mandated that that was the truth and that nobody could say, well, what about no? Oh, it was made a mandate? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. So the government made it a mandate? Yeah, because, you know, YouTube did and so did uh, all oh, the social... Oh, so you can't speak? You can't even speak on that in those platforms? No, you can't say, you know... That it wasn't. You can't say that, like, you know, the there election was election. Was rigged or, yeah, right. that's all a lie. The election was not rigged. 36 counties can give you 81 million votes. Right. That's a fact. So it wasn't rigged? Of course not. Yeah. 36 counties have 81 <laughs> million people in them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See? Yeah. That's the truth. And yeah. don't you dare say anything against it or you'll be off YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. And all the other ones, because we have, you know, there's such a thing as the truth and facts, and we have to stick to it. And, um, you know. It's scary. And that is the truth. And nobody died in the Holocaust either. No. That's the truth. Yeah. It should happen. It, Six million Jews should die right now because they cause all the problems in the world, but it never <laughs> happened. But it never happened. Yeah. Mandated. Well, you're, because you're part Jewish, right? Part of your family's Jewish? So, a couple clarifications there. So, the, the version going on on social media starts where just she makes the comment that the Holocaust never happened. Right. If it's you're just seeing, that. That's what is going around. And people are saying, oh my God, how could she say this? If you watch the full clip, she's clearly making a point about what you're allowed to say about the election. To be clear, I don't think the election right. was she stolen. She is doing election denialism. Yes. She is not doing Holocaust denialism. She, so she's, she's trying to make this point yes. that social media doesn't allow you to question the outcomes of the election or your videos will get censored, et cetera. And in making that point, she is saying, ironically, pointing out that she thinks there's some inconsistency between Biden having won a historically right. low number of uh, voting uh, of counties, despite winning a historically high number of votes in the raw number. And of course, the reason for that is that some counties, like Hawaii's, Hawaii's Kalawao County has 88 residents versus LA County has 10 million residents. So you can win a small number of residents, uh, sorry, a small number of counties and still get the popular vote, which is what happened with Joe Biden, to be clear. Joe Biden did right. win the election. But what she's saying is a series of things that she believes to be right. untrue, but framing them as obviously true things to make the point that there are some things that you can't say out loud, right. but which are obviously true. So she, by saying right. the Holocaust didn't happen, she really does mean she's the pointing Holocaust out that social, right. did happen. In the same way right. that saying Biden won, she's trying to point out that Biden didn't win in her opinion, which I do not agree with. Right. She's pointing out that social media will not take down a video for you saying what you said, what she said there about the Holocaust, but will, or at least until YouTube actually very recently, like last week or two weeks ago, changed their rules about elections, alleged election misinformation. But prior to that, you could not say, you, you, you could not say things that, again, we think are not true about the election. Um, they would take that content down, but they will not retaliate for 
you know, viciously, wildly untrue things like that the Holocaust didn't happen or, or that or yeah. the, and that if it didn't, it should have happened. So, but yeah. so she, but she is being dragged all over social media. Yeah. With this, just shows the power of clipping things and how because people are you know responding to this without any again because you have to watch the full. You didn't even have to watch the full video; you just had to watch that three minutes there that we played. Right. But the version going on on Twitter just starts with the comment about the Holocaust. Right, and you know, it is a usual suspects of a lot of um, yes. you know liberal tweeters who, for them, this is confirmation bias. She's someone who has said supportive things about Donald Trump. Her politics have been all over the place over the years, but because she is perceived as being solidly on the bad side of things, they want anything that confirms their bias against her, and they're over to look willing to overlook things like the fact that she is uh, a daughter of two Jewish immigrants, and it complicates the story at the very least. Now, of course, you can, I guess, technically be Jewish and a Holocaust sure. denier, but it might, for many people, raise a little bit of a flag saying, let me investigate this farther, if it's not so conveniently confirming all of your priors to ignore yeah, that. Yeah, Brian Krasenstein, one of the Krasenstein brothers, who I think we all remember— um, you know, what they're up to, says, well, I don't often call for the canceling of anyone. Yeah, I'm sure you don't. <laughs> I think it rarely serves a purpose. But when she got in front of an audience and said, and said, you know, what she said there, I will happily call for Roseanne Barr to be canceled. Then he, he has texted her words. Again, just, you, didn't, you didn't watch the thing, man. Yeah. You clearly didn't watch the full thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, many thanks to Zed Jelani for flagging this and Doing trying the actual to work, yes. push back a little Again, bit. Again, you don't have to like her. You can think she says right. kooky things all the time. Right. I certainly like do. the election denialism. <laughs> That's in the same and, you know, and she, sometimes she's straddling the line between yeah. um, saying what she really thinks and saying things that she probably knows are crazy because yeah. it's part of her... Her Shit. presentation yeah. as a kind of believer in kook things is part of her shtick and her comedy, and some of it's performative, some of it's not. Um, you know, that whole thing. But, okay, here she is clearly not actually making the allegations she's being accused of making. Yeah, and it's of course. very unfair, and people need to... And, and, you know, the same people who will, who will say that misinformation is so pervasive and you're idiots, you know, conservatives, conspiracy theorists, contrarian, are so misinformed and so idiotic and they'll fall for every last crazy thing somebody says, those people are just as gullible when they're served up something like this. Right, when they're right. served up a brief misleading clip of someone they're inclined to despise or think is a kook saying something insane, they, they don't need any additional verification. Yeah, maybe this is an argument for, you know, not content moderation, but having those um, the community, community notes, notes are great. feature is really helpful here. And yeah. also, of course, it's worth noting that, of course, at minimum, uh, six million people died horrifically and tragically in the Holocaust. Those are of the more, among the more conservative estimates of deaths of Jewish people in that particular genocide. And uh, Holocaust denialism is not on the table in Roseanne Barr's clip or, generally speaking, in the context of this For show. sure. More rising for you right after this. Twitter's Elon Musk has agreed to train with famed UFC fighter Georges St. Pierre in anticipation of his cage match with Meta founder Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> However, the fight might be squashed altogether because Mark Zuckerberg's mom told him he couldn't fight. <laughs> May Musk recently tweeted about the much-anticipated brawl, quote, and now the fight has been canceled. Great relief. So this is the moms getting in here saying no? Yeah, so <laughs> apparently uh, Zuckerberg uh, 
said that his mother had these concerns about him actually fighting, and that's why he wasn't going to be able to do it. This is after so many news organizations made all of these graphics showing head-to-head -head stats, height, weight, wingspan, uh, special skills, training in Krav Maga, whatever it was they had under their belt that was likely to give them a competitive advantage. And it seems like there is perhaps conveniently an excuse now not to go tete-a-tete. -tete. Mm. Hey, I can picture Musk carrying the sink, the infamous sink, <laughs> right. into, the, into the arena. <laughs> Let that sink in! Yeah, um, if it was a battle of puns, I think that Elon Musk yeah. might win, but only he will because ride he steals in so many other people's memes off the internet. Being pulled by the doe dog, <laughs> the whatever that guy is, you know what I mean? I know, I know what you, you know mean, what I mean, Robbie. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we talked about this, we mentioned this a little bit yesterday in the context of the RFK uh, weightlifting videos that went so viral. Um, why do you think that this has uh, fascinated the public so much? Because it's funny. <laughs> That's it. There's nothing beyond that. Sometimes it's funny and we just like to be entertained. Are you not entertained? I mean, there is something unique about such high-profile figures whose behavior really does affect stock prices and global economies being willing to engage, I think in Musk's case at least, very seriously in behavior that ordinarily would be Did seen as unbecoming the, uh, of the a CEO. Did you see the ketamine report? The ketamine report? Uh, Musk does some ketamine. Musk does ketamine regularly, according to the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I saw I, I saw a, just a banger of an opening paragraph from this Wall Street Journal piece on, uh, yeah, here it is. Elon Musk takes ketamine, uh, Sergey Brin takes, does uh, magic mushrooms, um, and so on. It's, it's this long piece about how all these, all these famous people are just getting into that kind of, which I have no problem with. I'm, Condone. I should condone it for everyone, not just for the wealthy and the famous, you know, the people who have enough resources to um, avoid uh, criminal penalties for it. But um, but anyway. Yeah, I mean, historically, the lack a lack of confidence in a CEO can, as I was saying, negatively affect stock price. And we've seen Elon Musk's um, statements that he's made on Twitter, things that he said in interviews, caused there to be disturbances there as well. The fact of his investment in Twitter had made many Tesla investors very skeptical and afraid. Some came out talking about how it seemed like he wasn't devoting enough attention to his main gig, as it were. And one might expect that this kind of behavior might speak to, in a, in a different time period, a kind of instability, some questions about judgment, a lack of confidence and in the integrity. Ketamine is supposed to stable you. I'm talking about the, cha the, oh, the cage fight. Okay. <laughs> uh, and questions about the maturity of the person that's involved and all these other kinds of things. And I do think that he has suffered financially as a consequence of some of these behaviors. And yet we do seem to be moving into a world where either because he's so rich, he's just indifferent to those kinds of stock fluctuations or because there's just new normals that are being set. Uh, with respect to how CEOs are able to publicly behave um, while still being considered to have professional the, the, credibility. The, fight, the potential fight between Musk and Zuckerberg is it's kind of a joke, though, right? It's not, I don't know that it's malicious. I think it's just kind of funny. Wait a minute. It, I, Musk represented that he was being fully serious. Right. So I'm not saying it's malicious, but it seems serious. That's why there was this engagement about it. That seemed like this is something that plausibly serious, Musk might do. Serious in like a, like you could do the dunk tank for charity or something like that? Sure, except for that it's a physical fight and yeah. not, a, not a thing well, that it little sounds kids like it's can participate not in at a fair. But 
Yeah, I, I don't understand. Help me understand. Help me understand your point. You think that it's not. I mean, I don't an odd, it's not an aberrant behavior for two CEOs of multi-billion dollar companies to want to engage in fisticuffs because they are feeling competitive about each other in the tech, uh, with each other in the tech space? No, that doesn't sound that weird. Okay. Yeah. Tech people are weird. Is know. there a, a instance of something like that having happened before that makes it feel like this is norm, relatively normal but to you? They're not you? actually like punching each other or beating each other in the street. They're, they're talking some trash, some smack on social media. And is that a thing CEOs typically do is talk smack about I mean, each I other on social media? I guess because these are two of the most important and pivotal and wealthiest CEOs there are. And that's I mean, I feel like it's not especially behaving. controversial to point out that this is new behavior. This, that's a value-neutral judgment. I'm not mm -hmm. saying it's bad behavior. I'm not saying they shouldn't have a fight. I'm just saying that historically, people didn't behave like this. And historically, historically when there were over minor, you know, scuffles. Which CEOs dueled over minor scuffles? I mean, notable people in, what, in the 1800s? So you're before? saying that some, like, British parliamentary our, people who got in a fight. Two of our, our, vice, our vice president and one of the founders of our country right, was that's, killed that's, over That's not the question. A dispute. If you're, if you're, you're, if you're like, citing um, uh, Hamilton... <laughs> For the proposition that sometimes two CEOs have public fights, like literal fights, in a cage match, then I don't, I don't, I don't know to tell you. It's not. I don't think it's controversial to point out that this is a relatively novel event. That's why it got so much um, media pickup and why people were kind of amused and excited about the prospect of it happening. It seemed literally plausible and not just like smack talk because Elon Musk is someone who has demonstrated that he's extremely literal, hence the sink uh, joke, that he is willing to do things that are somewhat outlandish, like paint over the Twitter sign outside of the headquarters in, um, in, in San Francisco, and that he has demonstrated an interest in some of these like uh, fitnessy types of realms, and that he might really do it. And, and that is why it's so interesting it's because it's so odd. It's so different. It's so new. It's so controversial. And I do think that, if anything, the, the, the choice to call it off, which seems to be led by Mark Zuckerberg, or at least Mark Zuckerberg's mom, is the return to normal here. I mean, but I'm just pushing back, like, again, the newness part of it. it you know, violent, even, un, even unstructured physical violence between men was, is just, his, on the historical scale, extremely common until very recently. I mean, it, it's decreased dramatically over time. Like, bar fights used to be way more common. Again, before that, duels. Uh, you know, people getting, like, stabbed at dinner with your friends as part of, like, the medieval experience, right? The capacity for violence that especially male human beings have with each other is, is a, it's, like, hardwired into your biology, I guess. And you expect that of two CEOs. I mean, you, you're emphasizing, like, the CEO part, I, but I am, notable... No, but, Robbie, this isn't Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk bumped into each other at a bar, had too much to drink, someone insulted somebody's wife, and then they got into a brawl. This is with knowledge of forethought and planning and sitting behind the comfort of one's own computer, randomly saying, because, because Mark Zuckerberg is launching a Twitter competitor, because Meta is launching a Twitter competitor, that I want to physically fight someone else, which seems like a joke. That's just a joke in the, and very much in the line of what Elon Musk likes to say. Then Mark Zuckerberg says, yeah, totes, let's do it. I'm serious. And then we have a week of news cycle about it before it's finally seemingly called off. 
that that feels like a different kind of escalation than oh I got jostled in the look I've 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 been jostled in the bar and almost wanted to get into a fist fight myself but me deciding to randomly tweet at Not Jake me. Tapper I or use, some other news personality and say words. hey Jake get your get your gloves on we're gonna go three rounds this is the time and the place that feels weird <laughs> different that that feels like an escalation it's it's, it's just a, it's a modern manifestation of a familiar phenomenon it, it's it's exactly akin to insulting the person's wife or their or their sexual Launching prowess a, or something a competitive that well he's calling out his his uh, uh meta is mark zuckerberg's great love probably I mean, but then, tell me what you think. Tell me if you think I'm totally way off base here. Please, please I don't think I am. And I use my words, and I'm sure you do most of the time as well, Brianna. I, I wouldn't do. want to face your fists. Darn snappy. I'm way over here. That's, a, that's exercising some good judgment, Robbie. All right. Tomorrow on, Riser, uh, uh, on, tomorrow on Rising, hey, that's the name of our show, writer Merrick Vaughn will join us to discuss how Congress is doubling down on explosive claims of illegal UFO retrieval programs. You will not want to miss that. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you don't ever miss any of our content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.